me begin this morning by welcoming everyone who's here. If we have visitors, and I'm not sure if we do, but if we do, uh, we're especially grateful for you being here, and I hope you want to come back and be with us in the future. Um, Before I actually get into the lesson, that was last weekend great or what? Uh, Heard so many comments about it, and uh, if you were uh, blessed to be here and be part of that, And uh, Bill, I will echo what you said last Sunday morning. That was a very heavy lesson last Sunday morning. Uh, Touched a lot of people the whole weekend did. And um, I know you benefited from it if you were here. I certainly did. And and just thankful for all that took part in bringing that about. Um, I know Wes especially did a lot of legwork and so forth to make that happen. And uh, we're grateful for it. This morning I want us to begin to wrap up. The uh, third quarter, uh, third quarter, how how about the, uh, yeah, the third quarter, that's it. The third quarter of our theme, and we're talking about things that characterize or identify the Lord's church, my church, your church. Um, We've been looking at, for the last two and a half months, we've been looking at the idea of unity. Now, certainly we want and we strive for, we desire, it should be our goal to have unity. This morning I want to begin to wrap that up and then I'll conclude that next Sunday morning with the official wrap-up of the quarter. But I want to talk about something that I call the Malachi Principle. Now, that's just something that stuck in my head some time back. But primarily what I'm going to talk about this morning is Jesus the Lord. If Jesus is truly the Lord of this place, of East Orange Church of Christ, then we have unity. And anything short of our honoring Him as the Lord, we will fall short of the unity that the Lord commands and wants in this place. So as we begin to think about that, and think about tying unity especially, I hope I can get this to work. Come on. There we go. Alright. As I begin to talk about it, I want us to look at Malachi chapter 3. If you'll turn over and look at that passage with me, and this is why I'm calling it the Malachi Principle, because it is the principle as stated here by the last prophet of an Old Testament book. John the Baptist would be the last Old Testament prophet, according to Jesus. But to write a book, Malachi would be the last. If we look at the first few verses of Malachi 3, you should recognize from verse 1 immediately that this is a prophecy of John the Baptist, as we call him. And John, in fact, quoted from Malachi 3 when he began to prepare the way, as it were, for Jesus. I want us to read this together, and then we're going to take a look at this passage. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Whom you desire or delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, or pleasing unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, 
And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterers, against the false swearers or liars, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the orphans, and that turn aside the stranger from what is right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 6 especially. For I am the Lord, I change not, and therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed, interestingly he said. And a lot of things within this passage, and I'm not going to touch on everything this morning, it's not time to do that, but I do want to emphasize several things. First of all, if you notice in verse 1, it is a prophecy of John the Baptist, and we often refer to the passage for that. But more than that, far more than that, it really... Excuse me, is a prophecy of Jesus himself. Yes, John is the messenger who is preparing the way for the Lord. But primarily this passage prophesies of Jesus the Lord, who is called the messenger of the covenant. Now we know that covenant obviously to be the law of Christ, the New Testament, the gospel, the good news. But it says he has come, or he will come, to his temple. When this is affected, he will have come to his temple. And you'll notice that it emphasizes in verse 1 that it is his temple and his message. Now, I'm going to slow down for just a second and make this point. It occurs to me that most religious people in the world, and I've been watching, I don't know if you have, sometimes I get disgusted, I can't stand to watch the news, and I tell myself, you know what, you're going to have a break today, and we're just not looking at it. Whatever happens, I don't want to see it. But I can't help being drawn to what's going on. There's a lot of turmoil. I mean, when you get up on a morning and North Korea has fired yet another missile and there's been yet another statement made by someone, there's been another fight to break out overnight. I mean, it's an amazing time we're living in and it's not a good time. And I can't help but think that the answer to so many people in the world is religion. And yet... The religions of the world and most religious people look at religion as something that is for them and by them, you know, that they design what they like, they talk about what they want, they garner to themselves teachers and perhaps philosophies that give them what they want, that that appeal to them and appease them. And yet when we look at the Bible, what we see again and again is that religion is God's. It is His temple, for example, that's being discussed here. It is His message that's being discussed. And as we look at that and we continue to look at this passage, I think we understand that the basis of our unity, if we are united here, and if we're going to be united at this place, the basis of our unity is that we all together, all of us, delight in God. We seek God. We want to know the truth. We want to do the truth. We want to be what the Lord wants us to be. Look again at verse 1. When he says, I will send my messenger and he'll prepare the way. And the Lord, notice, whom you seek. The one you're looking for. Now the Jews were looking for the Messiah. They had a totally false concept about who he was, but they were looking for him. And people today are looking for a Savior. They're looking for a Lord to submit to. We are a people created by God with that desire. We want to find the Lord. But notice, the Lord whom you seek 
will suddenly come to his temple. And notice as it goes on, the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. It's like Psalm 1 in verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man. And he begins to talk about the man who doesn't join basically with everybody else. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now I'd ask a simple question this morning. Do you really take pleasure, delight in the law of God? In the message of Jesus? In other words, when you think about what the Bible says, as we commonly put it, do you look at things within the Bible and say, I wish it didn't say that. I wish God didn't tell me not to do this. I wish God had not said do that. Is that the way I approach I once did. I once told Dale Smelser, sitting across the desk, you know, I believe, I do believe in what we're studying. I believe in God. But I can never be a Christian because I will never, ever, ever again submit to someone telling me what I can and cannot do. But you come to understand that the greatest delight you'll ever have in life, the greatest good there will ever be in life, is to follow what God says. The blessings that come from that, and we will discuss that in the last part of the lesson, are incomparable. I look at my life, and I think that Montel and I have been talking about for the last couple of weeks. We just went home, and there's a, I won't belabor this point, but there's a lot of sadness there. And there's a lot of sadness within my family. Some of you know that very well. Others of you may not. But that didn't have to be. They didn't have to have the life they had. They could have chosen to follow God. If we follow God, and sometimes it's hard, you know? Sometimes you don't want to do what God says do. And sometimes you do wish that God didn't say don't do that. But if you do, the blessings that you will have that result from that are not to be compared with anything on this earth. And so God says, I'm sending the messenger of the covenant. The basis of our unity is Jesus, the Lord, the one we seek, the one in whom we delight. He's like a refiner's fire, it says here in verses 2 and, and following. A fuller soap. You know, the idea in that, and we could talk about that for quite a while, and I won't, but he's about refining. He's about purifying. You know, He's about cleaning us up. He cleans up our lives. He makes our lives different. I remember that poor, troubled, disturbed, 16-year-old sitting across from Dale, not wanting to submit to thou shalt and thou shalt not. And I told him that. That's all the Bible is. You, you know, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. And I don't want to do that. But God refined me. He changed my thinking. He purified. He began to clean my life up. It took a while. <laughs> it took a long way, still taking time. But you know what comes out on the other side is a new man. It's a different person. And that's what Jesus is about. If we submit to Jesus the Lord, if we allow Him to be the refiner's fire and the fuller soap, He will make a different life for us. And it will be a good life.
So that we may offer our sacrifices, if you notice here in this passage. That we may offer our sacrifices in righteousness. Not just making sacrifice. Not just giving up things or doing things for God, but doing what's right that God wants. We may offer our sacrifices in righteousness and that our offering will be pleasing to Him. It's not like those people in Matthew 7. Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in Your name? It's not like that. No, because Jesus said, I I don't know You. I never knew You. We don't have a relationship. We're not close. No, the Christian, though, submits to Jesus and asks the question, what do you want? Whatever you want, I'll do that. I may not understand it. I may wonder why you said that. But I'll do whatever you want. And if I do that, it's pleasing in His sight. And again, what comes from that is that we become a true worshiper. We've talked about these verses. As Jesus said in John 4, in verses 23 and 24, the Father seeks people who will worship in spirit, that is, give of themselves, and worship in truth, that is, do what God says. That's the ones that God wants. In Romans 12, you know, we we yield ourselves like a priest upon a, a sacrificial altar. We give our spiritual sacrifices. We reason that it is logical what God has said. We may not know the logic behind it, but we believe that. And so by the mercies of God, we yield ourselves and we do what we are capable of doing. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, we become priests. I want you to notice again in this passage, it is interesting to me in verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi. I don't have time this morning, but if we went back to Malachi chapter 1, God was blasting these people. Here it is some 50 years later from the last time God blasted these people. And now they're out there choosing the worst animals. They had a lame animal or one that was sick or whatever. That's the one that's going to God. You know, I'll give that one. Wouldn't I go for anything else? So let me sacrifice that. God cleans all that up. And you begin to want to give and do for God. If some benefit comes into your life, someone came to me this morning right before services and talked about an unexpected benefit that came into their life and wanted to do something more for God. That's the way Christians think. That's what they do. If God has blessed me, I want to give more. I want to give back. I want to do for God. And you'll notice he says, purifying the sons of Levi. We're all the sons of Levi now. We're the priests. And we become the ones who, the royal priesthood of 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, who offer these spiritual sacrifices. We've been blessed by the Lord to do that. But let's go on. You notice he also says here that he is a judge. Jesus is not just a messenger of good news that basically means believe in me and be saved and then pretty much the rest of it doesn't really matter. No, he's a judge. And he's a swift judge. And there really is no leeway When you look at these things here that are listed in verse 5, they could read like a commentary on the modern world. I mean, we read something like sorcerers, and we're like, oh, sorcerers. You know, we think of dungeons and dragons. Generally speaking, sorcerers, if we go back and look at the etymology of the terms, they were drug users and drug peddlers. And we've got a lot of drug use going on in this world today. 
But if you look at the rest of this, I mean, we're talking about adulterers and liars. And we're talking about people that oppress other people. The one that's in the higher position, the one that's got a little more power, well, he just squeezes and steps on the neck of the one below it. That's our world. And Jesus is a swift judge of that. To lift us up out of that cesspool and to basically say to the world who chooses to stay down in that cesspool, I will judge that. Make no mistake, I will swiftly judge that. People who do not reverence God, people who do not fear God, Jesus will be a judge. We like to think of Jesus, the world likes to think of Jesus as the sacrifice on the cross. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right about thinking of him. You know, the old rugged cross as Kenny led us in. But there's also everything right in thinking about Jesus, the glorified judge, who will someday return for his own and will sit in judgment. Because as Jesus says, I am the Lord. I change not. When we begin to look at unity, first person might say, what does all this have to do with unity? It has everything to do with it. When we begin to look at unity, we begin to look at a church and what a church stands for and the goal of what a church is. We talk about the Lord. We talk about His message. We talk about what He wants. And we unify in that effort to achieve that. Because Jesus doesn't change. We might talk about the world and its changes, and we will for a few minutes here. But Jesus is the Lord, and He does not change. And so let's go to John 17. We've been emphasizing this passage. We've been talking about unity, and I, and I want us to look at it. Now, especially verses 11 through 23, the middle section of it. It's a prayer of Jesus. And as we talk about this prayer, we talk about unity. Because Jesus says a lot about it. Start with me in verse 11. He says, now I am no more in the world, speaking to the Father. But these, I think speaking of the apostles, the eleven anyway, these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. When Wes was teaching this at Wendy's on Thursday night, we asked the question. They are one. Notice this. Keep them through thine own name those that you've given me. But how? Or with what? And he's going to explain that. The basis of unity. What it takes to be kept by God. What it takes to be one in God. While I was with them, verse 12, in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, Father. And these things I speak in the world that they might have, notice, my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's exactly what is being talked about in Malachi 3. The goal of Jesus is not to oppress your life. You know, Jesus is not trying to establish the authority here so that he can make your life miserable. Take away from you the things you really want to do. Tell you you can't have what you really want. That's not what Jesus is after. No, what Jesus is about is for you and I to have not just some joy, some good. I hear people say that quite a bit. I need some good in my life. I want to have some pleasure in my life. Well, that's not the goal of God. The goal of God is for you and I to have His joy. And His joy is complete. Notice as He goes on here. 
I have given them thy word. That's the way that he keeps us. I have given them thy word, he says. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. I think he speaks of Satan there. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now verse 17. Sanctify, set them apart, make them different in this life. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Lord, the messenger of the covenant. As thou hast sent me in the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. All those things that Jesus did that were so different, so set apart from everything around him, so set apart from the idea of the Messiah the Jews had. So different. Why did he do that? For our sakes. He did that for his disciples' sake. That they also might be sanctified through thy truth. Now notice as he goes on. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And I think that's us. I think that's anyone who believes in Jesus through the word delivered by the apostles. That they all may be one, verse 21. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Johnny, I'm going to mention something you said at the end of class as we were walking out this morning. And Johnny said, you know, I just can't wait to get there. I want to get there and see the whole story. As you just look in front of you, from Adam to us, the whole story unfold right before us. And boy, you know, that's some joy, you know. I mean, to be able to stand there in full confidence knowing you chose Jesus. You wanted Him. You looked for Him. You found Him. You believed in Him. You let Him clean your life up and make you what you really should have been. And now, all of this, that's what Jesus is praying for in this passage. So for the sake of unity at this place, Let's talk about what we cannot do. We can't compromise our values. I went to school. I graduated from a school, school of theology, that basically taught unite on these ten fundamentals. And in fact, they taught that you implement those in a church when you pastor it. This is the covenant that people sign. We agree on these ten fundamentals. But we can compromise other things. Many, many other things. Because it really does not matter. We're saved regardless. So we may be more pleasing to Jesus if we follow this more closely, but it's really not necessary. No, God is not telling us that. God is saying to us, Jesus was praying here that people be sanctified through the truth. Jesus was praying that people would be one. In Him as He is in the Father. There's no compromise there. There's no compromise of values, or ethics, or principles. You don't don't give those things up in order to adapt to the times. We can't say this is 2017 and people just don't do this anymore. Let me tell you what happens when you don't do this. Some of us, many of us here, can look around at our families and see what happens when you don't do this. And it's not pretty. 
It's not pleasant. And you can look at the worsening morals and the practices of people and you can think to yourself, you know, that's what I need to be part of. That's what I want. I want to be where everybody else is. I don't want to stand out and be different. You can do that. And you will reap the disaster they reap. And that's the truth. We cannot compromise our values, our ethics, our principles. And we can't do that either individually or congregationally. The world may tell us you have to accept this or you have to accept that. Jesus says no. The world may say you must be like this or you cannot exist any longer. Jesus says no. But in my personal life, I'm faced with choices every day, and so are you. Someone will be my friend. Someone will like me. I will be able to be part of a group. I will be more accepted if I will just give up some values that I have, the ethics that I have, some principles that I've held to to this point. I can have this person or these people. But will you really? Or do you know many people, perhaps you've been one like I have yourself, where you've tried that road, you've given up things, and you don't have anybody. No, Jesus is a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap, and it leads to a road of joy. But it's not an easily traveled road. The practices of people change, that's true. They digress. Every child has probably said to every parent, everybody else is doing it. <laughs> and that's true. I mean, practically speaking, that's true. The world around us changes. It digresses. That's the history of society. We can go back if you'd like to do that. I'll be glad to do that with you. We'll study together societies that existed 5,000 years ago, and they won't be any different than the society we have today, except they didn't have Apple computers. They change. They digress. And when they digress, they digress to a point that they fall apart. And that happens in whole nations, it happens in empires, it happens in homes, and it happens in individual lives. That is the truth of things. But the truth of the Lord does not change, it does not digress. Our goal is real unity. So that's Jesus' goal, John 17. But it's unity in mind, in judgment. That's been our theme verse for the, the month. Of the same mind and same judgment. And that's the mind of Jesus. That's what we're striving for. If we're one, we're truly in fellowship with the Lord. We've talked about that from 1 John 1. We're in fellowship with the Lord. Therefore, we're in fellowship with one another. But the threat to real unity in the church, we generally look at it as factions and divisions that crop up in the church. And that is a great threat. When this group begins to war against this group, it'll tear a church apart. But you can see that I say here, compromise of the truth is an equal, if not greater, threat to the unity within a church. Because once you say, it's okay if I give up just this point, just one little point. Once you say that about your life, or we say that about the church, then where does it end? If you can give up one, you can give up another. And yet another, and yet another, and yet another, until you have nothing. The great threat is a person who is willing to sacrifice the truth in his life or her life, or they are in the life of the church. But what we can do, 
We can allow for growth in a congregation, for maturity. Because, you know, we're not all at the same place. Earlier this year, I celebrated, if you want to call it that, but, I mean, it had been 40 years since I obeyed the gospel. 40 years since I was baptized. We have people in this room that have not been a Christian even three years, five years. And we have young children in this room, and they're just beginning to awaken to the truth of God. We're not at the same place. And we don't individually reach maturity at the same age or even the same rate or pace or whatever you want to call it. We don't all get there as fast as other people. In Hebrews 5, you know, it says when for the time they ought to be teachers. Well, they have to have that time. Or John 16 and verse 12 where Jesus said himself right before this prayer. I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. So it will wait for a later time. We have to understand that, and we can. But I'm telling you what it requires if we're going to do that and maintain unity. It requires belief in our fellow members. And I mean real belief. You believe the best about other people. You know, you look at Jesus in Luke 7, my favorite passage. That woman crying at Jesus' feet. You know, Simon looked at her as just a despicable sinner. But Jesus looked at her as a person whose life was changing, and she would get up from his feet, and she would go on and do what's right. That's an amazing thing. And when you look at some of these other passages, like Luke 22, and here is Peter boasting, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom, I'll tell you why. I mean, man, if they come to take you to prison, I'll go with you. I'll kill for you, I'll die for you, I'll do anything for Jesus. Maybe you've boasted like that. You've talked about how strong you are, what great things you will do, and if this ever happened, this is what you would do. Well, Peter was going to fail that night. And yet Jesus looks at him in Luke 22, and I love this passage. He said, man, you're going to deny me three times. Cock's going to crow twice, the rooster's going to crow, and before it does, you are going to deny me all night long. But then Jesus said this. When you're converted... Not if you're converted. I believe in you, Peter. So when you are converted, strengthen your brother. Now, I ask you a question. And it's a hard question because I've asked myself this question all week long. Do I believe in my brethren like that? I'll ask even a more pointed question. Do I believe in the people here? Do you believe in the people here like that? If we want unity, we do. It's trusting fellow members. It's looking around and seeing what we have here at this place. It's understanding from 1 Corinthians 12. We have this group of people because God has tempered this church together. God has set the members, every one of them, in this place. And when we look around, we see them as a help to the goal of the whole. Not a hindrance. I don't look around this room and say, thank God we've got him. And thank God we've got her, but man, I wish we didn't have him. We're not looking at it like that. We're looking at it like what each one can bring to the table that we need. I want to tell you something. Now I want you to listen closely to me. Everybody draw in for a little bit. I am a talented dude. Okay. I got talents, abilities. You know something? 
I got things, many of them. I'm the worst person in this room at doing those things. I need you. If we're going to have the church the Lord wants, I need you. And you need me. And when I trust that God knows what He's doing, and I look at people for what they could be, and they will be, if we all unite, help each other, and give what we can give, and take what we need to take, we will have what the Lord wants. You know, Jesus could simply look into Peter's heart and other people. He could look into their heart and he could see that. It's a lot harder for me and it's harder for you. The Bible tells us we can. Matthew 7, Luke 6, we look into their lives and we know them by their fruits. We can do that. But it means not just looking at the one bad time in a person's life or the one bad incident in a person's life. It means looking at someone not like Simon did. Look at that woman down there. If Jesus knew what kind of woman that was, what kind of person are you? I look at myself, and I look at times where, when I was a thief, I stole from people what they wanted to keep. I look at times when I fought with people and wanted to kill them, and in one case, almost succeeded. I look at myself and the things I've said and the things I've done, the horrible, wretched things I've done in my life, and I ask myself, is that who I am? And would I want other people to see me like that? The answer is no. I want them to see me on the other side of the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. I want them to believe the best about me. And yet I want that, and I turn around and I look at someone who's made maybe a horrible mistake or gone through a terrible time in their life, and I say, oh, that woman is such and such. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. He didn't do that. And you know, we can sacrifice our individual wants. That is what I want and what I like. I've been parts of business meetings, for example, or group discussions between people, and everybody's screaming what they want to everybody else. Where does that get you? Nowhere, except everything falls apart. But if I am willing to give up some of the things I just want, I'd rather it be this way. I like it that way, you know? If I'm willing even sometimes to suffer wrongfully, like 1 Corinthians 6 talks about. Rather than dragging my brother into court, that would be the extreme, and fighting before an unjust judge for what I demand. I just say, okay, you take it. And maybe even I say, you take this too, Matthew 5, my coat and my cloak. And I wait for the time when that person grows to the point, and they will. I've had it happen in my life. Where they grow to the point they come back to me and they say, you know something? I was wrong those years ago. I should not have treated you that way. I should not have done that. And that's right. And thank God we've grown to this point. But it makes it a lot easier when I let it go for a time and give that person time to grow rather than coming down on them with both feet and everything else that I have. That's what Jesus would have done. 
And we can strive to treat each other better while keeping all of this in perspective. Why would I want to treat you well or treat you nice when you mistreated me last week? Why would I want to do that? But I ask you a, a greater question. Why would Jesus? I mean, Michael, you sinned against me. You did this terrible thing against me. I love you. I believe in you. I forgive you. I don't see that guy. Because I'm going to help you and you're going to be better. Isn't that what I should be doing with my brother? If we want unity at this place, that's what we do. And that's what we strive for. Now, I'm going to leave the lesson here. And in some respects, it's right in the middle of the lesson, and I know that it's intentional. Because I'm going to pick back up next Sunday morning. We're going to go to that passage that Ani Eddy read for us, and we're going to go from there and wrap up this quarter on unity in my church. Are you here this morning and you're not a child of God? Do you believe in Jesus? That He is the Son of God? Will you confess your belief? Will you be willing to change your life and live your life for Him? Will you be baptized this morning for forgiveness of your sins? Do you need to come to the Lord and ask for strength? Ask your brethren to pray for you. Won't you please come while we stand and sing?